the three characteristics of the millennials want out of leadership is inspirational leadership. So he says that if you aren't someone who's inspiring to your millennial employees, then you can just partner up with someone or bring on someone who is inspiring. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the best ever conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. Today's Friday. We do follow on Friday on Fridays. That makes sense, right? And we got Theo Hicks with us, and we're going to be talking about a couple lessons that he learned by interviewing guests on this show, and we'll go ahead and get things started. Yes, yeah, so let's jump right into it. So there's two interviews we're going to discuss today. Um, the first lesson is going to be about millennials, and the second lesson is going to be about using institutional money when raising money for deals. Mm-hmm. So the first interview was with Chris Tuff, who was a very interesting guy, very nice, very knowledgeable about the millennials. It's funny hearing him talk about them and seeing if it applied to me or not. So I'm not sure if you're a millennial or Gen X. I am. Joe. I okay, barely, perfect. yeah, 1982. So I barely make the cut. Yeah, you just barely make the cut according to Chris's time frame. Mm-hmm. So he is an expert on working with millennials and getting them to work at high levels of production. He works at Atlanta-based advertising firm where he became the youngest partner in its 100-year history because of his ability to raise the production value of the millennials. They like that. And it It piqued my curiosity for sure. Yeah. So what he talked about is six ways that he believes the business landscape is going to change once millennials become the predominant demographic in the workforce as baby boomers retire and then Gen X becomes the new baby boomers and then millennials become the new Gen X. So what you should think about this is if you are a manager these are the six things that you should do in order to get the most out of your millennial workers. So for him, he is less about forcing them to work based off of how things typically go and figuring out how millennials are and then figuring out how to create an environment that allows them to actually thrive. Again, this is what he thinks. Before we even get into it, how many best ever listeners have a fleeting thought or a prevailing thought that is why do I have to cater to them? I've got the business. Why don't they pick themselves up and do the job? I mean, come on. Why do we have to baby them? And I think that's a natural thought, but please continue. Yes. Again, this is just what he said. (laughs) The follow-up and long-term thought process that I have with that is, well, you can swim upstream or you can go with the current. And if you go with the current, then you've got to know how to properly navigate and what's the best way to get the most out of those who are with you. So I fully embrace 
what we're about to learn. But I think there might be a thought that some people have where it's like, well, okay, why do I have to try and cater to them? Come on, why don't we just approach things like we've always done it? But mm-hmm. I understand the importance of it and I'm on board for it. I think it'll make a little bit more sense when they go through these things. Okay. So first you define the millennial. So the birth year is 1981 to 1996. And it's actually broken into two different subsections of the millennials. He calls, <laughs> he calls the first ones the Oregon Trail millennials. <laughs> but I think me and Joe are the Oregon Trail millennials. <laughs> yep. Yep. So those are the ones born from 81 to 90 and then 90 and after. I think it's actually probably closer to 91 and 92 and after is the Snapchat millennials. Oh, I um, hate Snapchat. Never been on it, never will. I'm in the 90s and I didn't use it, but my sister is at 92 and she uses it. So is that based on when they adopted technology okay. and then when the recessions hit them and their parents? So that's kind of how he breaks it down. So millennials that went through the recession have a little bit more resilience than the ones that did not go through the recession or did not have parents that went through the recession. So, okay, so the six things that he says that bosses need to do in order to get the most out of their millennials. Number one is work flexibility. So according to this survey, he quoted Deloitte survey, work flexibility is one of the main things that millennials are demanding. So as he mentioned, this is one of those things too, where there's always the set, you come in nine to five and did this office and that's just how it is. So he said that the main objection to this would be, I had to do it this way. So why aren't they going to do it? And he basically says, ask yourself the question, are you willing to make this change in work flexibility in order to get millennials to work with you? Because someone's going to be doing it. And if you're not, then they're just going to go work for that person. Mm -hmm. To what extent does that flexibility need to take place? Did you talk to him about that? No, this was a long time ago, but it wasn't just necessarily working from home. It was more on the lines of flexibility with hours in the office and then obviously working from home too. But we want to detail on the second one okay. the most. Number two is different things in leadership. So the three characteristics the millennials want out of leadership is inspirational leadership. So he says that if you aren't someone who's inspiring to your millennial employees, then you can just partner up with someone or bring on someone who is inspiring. But something that motivates them to actually work. And as I said, there's a millennial leadership survey you can find online that lets you know if you're deemed a leader in the eyes of millennials and then number two is autonomy what's the survey it's called the millennial leadership assessment okay that's what he called it number two was autonomy so he did a quote by ben kirshner and this is an example of, of what it means to be autonomous saying that it's up to you to protect this house we have something worth fighting for so kind of a combination of inspiration but also saying like hey it's up to you to make sure that our company thrives I'm not going to be micromanaging you. I'm not going to be breathing on your neck all the time. Obviously, if they're not getting the work done, then that's another issue altogether. But less micromanaging and more of them just being able to use their own millennial creative juices to figure out what to do. And then the third one is transparency. I thought it was interesting. And basically saying that at our leadership, they want someone who is willing to let them know when they're actually making mistakes, not just like mm-hmm. saying nothing until they get fired or have like some sort of performance plan or something. But also the other way around, they also want to know if they made any mistakes and they also want to know how the leaders are making decisions. So they kind of want to know what's going on. They kind of want to know what the big picture plan is at the company. So inspirational leadership, they want autonomy and they want transparency. That's number two, different things in leadership. Whereas I'm assuming maybe baby boomers were a little bit different. Three is demanding purpose out of their company and demanding that they give back to the world around us and the environment. So that one's kind of self-explanatory, but... 
they don't want to work for companies that are just companies and just sell their product and that's it. They want them to be involved in other aspects of the world, charities and things like that. For example, I worked at a company where you actually got, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like a point program where the more you volunteered, the more points you earned, the more points you got, you got cooler Cummins gear, like a hoodie and stuff like that. So kind of things like that. Hmm. I hate the word demanding in this context because it's, I immediately think be the change you want to see in the world. If you're demanding of your company that they do something, well, why don't you do it first? And then you set the example. And then as a result of you setting that example, then other people will follow you if that's a good example. And then you're a leader and then you can create your own company to do that activity that you so demanded to do. So I get the point of the companies have a purpose, totally understand that. And it should have some higher meaning associated to it. I understand that that is certainly what is important for a company, but for employees to, or millennials in this case, to demand it, well, why don't you go create your own thing and then you be the change that you want to see. Exactly. I would say, best of listeners that are listening to this, don't look at this as, oh, these are the characteristics I want to find in the company I work for. You want to think about this as, these are the mm-hmm. characteristics that I want to have in my company. Yeah. So basically, if you do what Joe just mentioned, then you'll attract these millennials who want this. So you don't want to be the millennial who's demanding right. <laughs> no, of the yeah. company. You want to create the company that has the purpose that millennials are attracted to. So when you say best ever listeners, you're really saying, Joe, remember this. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I mean, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, but you you already do this though. Yeah. yeah. The best ever causes. Yeah. Okay. So number four, this one's kind of obvious, but brand loyalty and employer loyalty goes out the window because there's so many different options out there. This is more along the line of like consumer goods. Someone will buy one particular product and then they'll just change your mind completely to something else if it's deemed cooler or whatever. And then employer loyalty, everyone kind of knows this, that millennials are not staying at jobs very long. He didn't really have a solution to that. He just said that, hey, that's what's happening. That's what I don't like about this. And it might be true. So I'm not saying it's not true. But what I don't like about it is we go through points one, two, and three. And it's like, okay, I'm going to create my business so that we (laughs) cater to the millennials. And then number four is, but they won't stay anyway. (laughs) I was like, what? I would think that... I would like to isolate two groups in a study. One group is the group of companies that adhere to points one, two, and three. And then the other group is a group that does not. And then identify, do people stick around longer if adhering to points one, two, and three? And if so, then that fourth point of they don't stick around is not correct. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's the case, but I would assume that's the case. If you're doing points one, two, and three, then they will stick around and they will be loyal. Otherwise, why the heck are you doing it in the first place? Yeah, I would imagine it's just to be loyal a little bit longer, but I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question. That's why you're the best ever interviewer. I didn't ask that question. You would have. <laughs> you'd be like, well, wait a minute. You just told me these three things I should do. And then you told me they're going to leave me. What the heck is right. up with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so these last three are pretty simple. So five. I thought there are six. So you said one through four. So last two? Yeah, the last two. Okay. So the last two are pretty simple. Reward and recognition of employees, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then yeah. open work environments that make them a part of the process. And this is something that I think is interesting because I've worked for companies before that did have the more open floor plans, the ones that didn't. 
And the open floor plans are definitely things that are pretty prevalent now in a lot of different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like my wife's company, they moved offices and their floor plan is entirely open. And it's kind of just tables that people just bring mm-hmm. their laptops to. And I think the first company I worked for was the exact same way. It was just tables that mm-hmm. you just sat at. So I'm not sure what the exact thought price is behind that, but I do know that that's happening a lot now. Yeah, but there's always executive offices lining the walls. So there's always the haves and have nots. Maybe not always, but 99% of the time, your wife works for a large Fortune 500 company, and I'll put money on it that in her office, while there are tables, there's also lining the walls, corner offices for those who do not sit at those common area tables. Not in this particular office, but I'm sure at their corporate headquarters, because she just sits with her boss, sit with everyone else when her boss is there. But my first company, we were all in the one side. He was not in an office, but he had his desk that was like standalone from everyone else's. <laughs> but I'm sure at the actual headquarters, I can't imagine the CEO is just sitting out in the open. Right. For good reason too. There's private conversations that need to take place. And of course there could be conference rooms and yeah. things like that. Okay. So that is a more literal term, not figurative. So when you say open environment it's literally it's more open spaces Mm -hmm. not i can talk to you about all sorts of stuff and everyone shares everything that they've got i think it's a combination of the two because he said open work environments and make them a part of the process oh right right, i think it's a combination combination of both yeah okay just to reiterate really quickly the six is work flexibility different things in leadership demanding purpose out of their company then leaving. And, and then four, four is then leave. <laughs> then five is reward and recognition of employees. And six is open work environments that make them a part of the process. Right. Uh, the interview is Chris Tuff. If you want to learn more about the whole millennial thing, he's called a millennial whisperer. Mm. Okay. Well, how about when we post this on Facebook, in our Facebook group, you go to besteverycommunity.com. Do you happen to know the day the interview airs? I do not, but I can put it in the show notes. Let me, okay, let me yeah. So best ever listeners, you can see in the show notes when the interview airs, and then we'll ask Grant on our team to post this interview in our best ever community, which is besteverycommunity.com. It's a Facebook group. But that's an easy way to get to it, besteverycommunity.com. And we'll ask Chris to comment on number four about, hey, if we do one, two, and three, then they're going to leave what's going on there and see if he comment on that one. Perfect. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about was an interview I did with Michael Meredith. He's basically a real estate syndicator. He raises money for development deals instead of kind of value add deals. Mm -hmm. And he just mentioned that he has a $40 million line of credit from Goldman Sachs. I thought that was interesting. And I kind of asked him a little bit more detail on how he did it. And I'm not getting into specifics, but he basically said that he had done multiple deals already. So he had the track record and he had the volume. And basically what they'll do once you talk to them is they'll look at your track record and see what they think you can actually do per year in transactions and basically on a credit off of that. But he was somehow introduced to them two years before I actually worked with them through someone that he had known through doing development deals. And it took him two years to get that line of credit. He said that he would actually fly out to their headquarters constantly and try to pitch them his company. I think he went two, three, or four times over the two-year span until they finally offered to fund some of his deals. <laughs> then, of course, once they offered to fund his deals, he actually turned them down for a particular deal because how expensive the money was compared to local money. 
than mm-hmm. how restricted it was as well and needed to close fast. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting because we just wrote a blog post about why you don't use institutional money. And again, so he uses them sometimes, but he doesn't exclusively use them for deals that he needs to close fast on because of the restrictions. And we just talked about in our blog post, some of the restrictions that you have when you're using institutional money. So I thought those kind of went together that he mentioned those restrictions, you mentioned those restrictions, but he actually has used the fund before. It just, again, depends on how quickly he needs to close on the deal and how risky the deal is. Because Mm -hmm. as we mentioned in the blog post, they won't look at the deal until after you've got under contract. And then they won't let you know if they're actually going to fund it until at least 30 days after you got the deal under contract. So if it's a riskier deal and they don't fund it, and you're trying to close within 60 days, well, you've only got 30 days to raise money, if you can raise money at all for that deal. And if you're the back out, there's consequences of backing out because you look bad to the broker, to the owner. So obviously there's pros to lines of credit because it is a line of credit. So it's basically you're getting $40 million from one investor in a sense, but there's also restrictions as well. So that blog post is called why I don't use private equity from institutions. So I'll make sure I put a note to put that in the show notes too. You can see why Joe doesn't use institutional money. Yeah, I'm on it now. It says why I don't work with private equity institutions for my apartment syndication. So if you mm-hmm. Google that plus type in my name, it'll pop right up. There are two variables that should they be in your favor, then it does make sense to work with private equity groups or family offices. The first variable is the time frame for the deal. If you are doing, say, a loan assumption, In fact, I know someone right now who has a loan assumption for a property that they have under contract. Well, loan assumptions tend to take longer, but regardless of what the circumstance, if you have a longer period of time, then you have more time to do the dance with a family office or a private equity group. And when I say longer period of time, well, typically it's 60 or 90 day close Maybe you have another 30-day extension on top of that, so 120, but usually not 120. Usually it's around 90 days. Well, if for some reason you have 120-day close and maybe another 30 days after that, you got a lot of time to figure out the equity piece. So you can work with the private equity group to go through their process. But the other variable that needs to be in your favor in addition to having at least 120 days, would be being able to make up that difference should they fall through at any point in time within the time period in which you have. Because if you do not have that money from a reliable source or sources, for example, your private investor network, then you're going to run out of time or they're going to say no, and you might still have time, but you don't have a reliable source to then fund it. So you're in trouble. You're going to lose the deal. You'll lose the money that you paid for due diligence, lose your time. Your reputation will be tarnished with the seller. Your reputation will be tarnished with the broker in the marketplace. It's not good. So if you do have at least 120 days plus, should they back out, then you can raise that money from your private network of investors or some other source that's reliable. Okay, it makes sense. Assuming that the terms that the private equity group has are similar terms to 
what your reliable source of equity as a backup option is. So we don't come across those deals where we can get those types of terms for the time frame. We need to close faster than that. But there might be some circumstances and a loan assumption could be one of those circumstances because it takes a little bit longer to do typically than a typical close and the contract's going to accommodate for that because it's the seller's lender that you're working with. Mm -hmm. It's not your lender. Perfect. All right. So just to wrap things up, we've got the best ever trivia question. So last week's trivia question was, what is the main difference between IRR, so internal rate of return and XIRR? So whatever you're calculating XIRR, you're most likely going to be doing it in Excel. There's like a formula, but it's not a simple return formula. So the best way to do it is in Excel. So the difference is going to be for the IRR, it assumes that the time period between the cash flow payments are equal. So if you are going to do a five-year IRR, then it'll assume that each cash flow was distributed one year later, which is not as accurate as the XIRR, which allows you to actually assign specific dates to each individual distribution. So if you're doing monthly distributions, quarterly, whatever, infrequent, you can actually assign the specific day that the money was distributed. So if you've got monthly distributions, some of them are higher or smaller than the other ones. You've got refinances going out, or maybe the end of the year is a higher distribution. You can assign those dates to the XIRR when you're doing the Excel formula. So that's the difference. Basically, just one's equal time periods. The other one is whatever time period between the cash flow you want. And then this week's question is going to be a question I actually get a lot. So the question is, according to SEC Regulation D-506B exception, an apartment syndicator can raise money from up to how many sophisticated non-accredited investors. So the first person to get the answer correctly, if you're listening to this audio, email info at joeparalyst.com. Watching the video, YouTube comments below, first person to get it correctly will get a free copy of our first book. And then lastly, we've got the apartment syndication resource of the week. Make sure you check out syndication school. We talk about the how-tos of apartment syndication and we also give away free documents. And on the fall long Friday, we've been highlighting some of the older episodes and the older documents that we've given away in order as in time-wise, not that the documents are out of date. So this one is we're going to talk about today is series number 18, which is how to secure commitment from your passive investors. The six part series that talks about one of the three things you're doing while you have the deal under their contract before closing. And one of those is making sure you're getting the money from your investors. And the free document is an investment summary template. So this is probably one of the best documents besides the cash flow calculator we've given away so far. So make sure you definitely check that out. It'll be in the show notes of this episode and also in the show notes of the episodes under series 18 at syndicationschool.com. Best of our listeners, we will see you in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. You can go to BEC20.com if you haven't already registered and make sure to register. Tickets go up each week. So if you're going, buy the ticket now, book the travel. It'll be the cheapest you can get the sooner you do it. And looking forward to hanging out, having fun, learning, and growing together. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high-income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show, 
as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.